Hello, everyone, and welcome to a podcast series called What Matters. This is the very first episode, and I'm your host, Eric. I want to thank whoever is listening to this podcast. As some of you might know, this episode is part B of an applied project for a master's degree in outdoor education from the University of Edinburgh. Part A is a paper accompanied by this podcast that explains the reasons why this podcast might be valuable. My hope as the creator of this podcast is that this and future episodes will be different than other podcasts you may have listened to in the past. I also hope this is the last time I say podcast. get too deep into this episode, I want to talk about where this applied project comes from. It comes from ideas that are shared between scholars, authors, cultures, researchers, and myself. It sprouts from the belief that the degradation of our planet and our increasingly clouded place within it is because of human interaction and ways of life that are grounded in the philosophical, culturally accepted ideas that separate humans and nature. This is represented as a human nature dualism. This dualism is imbued through the entire conceptual systems of Western knowledge and Western thought. Throughout this episode, I seek to try and dissolve this dualism. I want to talk about how this thinking shows up in my life, my research, and the life of individuals who I have spoken to. I am excited to share this way of knowing the world to be with you, but before we do that, I want to start with two activities. The first activity was introduced to me by anthropologist Tim Ingold in his book, Being Alive, Essays on Movement, Knowledge, and Description. If you are able, I would like you to go and find a stone. A good size to think about is no bigger than your hand. Once you have that stone, if you would please immerse it in water. So once the stone's surface is damp, I want you to take a good look at the stone. Inspect and remember the details. What's the color? What's the shape? What's the size? How does the light reflect across it? Allow the stone to remain close to you. You can set it on a desk or a table, but it'll be addressed later in this podcast. If you're walking or driving or moving and you don't want to pick up a stone, that's fine. It's not essential to the experience, but it is impactful. So if you're sitting there and you're debating, hmm, should I go and get a stone? I would do it. Go get a stone, immerse it in water, remember all the details, and then come back to the podcast. So now with our stone friends settled, it's time to talk about the second activity. The second activity is going to be an introduction to thinking, a thought experiment slash a guided meditation. This experiment comes from research, philosophy, and observation, and helps me think about the aliveness of our world and the relationships that are both inevitable and necessary that some of us overlook daily. I want to emphasize that the world is not littered with dead heaps or objects of matter that we either choose or choose not to interact with. 
Instead, we are always in relationships. We are in relationships with everything, and they are in relationship with us. I must remind listeners that some of the ideas I share are theories, they're not truths. If they go against your belief, then you may ignore them or you may try to accept them. There are many ways to know the world and many parts of it we may never be able to grasp with full certainty. From the wisdom of my older brother, doubt is not the end of a thought or the justification for falsity. Doubt is the beginning of an investigation, the chance to see the world through a new lens and test the results. Take a moment to settle into a comfortable position wherever you are able. Allow yourself to relax and give time to check in. Ask yourself, how are you feeling today? Are you sore? Are you uneasy? Are you tired? Are you excited? If so, bring the necessary attention to that. We're going to breathe in and out for five and a half seconds each direction. While you do this, remember to breathe slowly and deeply and exhale slowly and completely. Breathe in. One, two, three, four, five, and out. One, two, three, four, five. Two, three, four, five, and out. Two, three, four, five. Close your eyes if you would like to. As you continue to breathe deeply, I would like you to imagine the catalyst of our creation. Picture a vast sea of energy, infinitely dense and unimaginably hot. Then, with a sudden explosion of light, the universe, our home, as one may know it, was born. The widely accepted theory of the Big Bang tells us that this happened ridiculously fast. Within the first few minutes, light gases such as helium and hydrogen were formed. These are the most abundant elements in the universe, and they are found in almost all matter and were created in these first few minutes. This was not only the start of these elements, but this was the start of motion, movement, and time, the start of all stories and all pathways that we know. And these elements that were created have transformed and changed countless times, always becoming, never stagnant, not in form, not even today, and not even within you. Breathe in. And out. As you continue to breathe, 
I want you to visualize again the Milky Way galaxy, our home spinning gently in a cosmic dance. We are so small in comparison to the vastness that surrounds us. To understand how small, we must first imagine. Imagine that we are able to shrink our sun down to the size of a grain of sand and everything else shrinks respectively. With these newfound dimensions, some of us would be able to hold our whole solar system in the palm of our hands. Open your eyes and look at your hand. The sun and the eight planets we consider part of our solar system are within that area. Yet the Milky Way galaxy would still be the size of North America. Close your eyes again and breathe in. And out. Let's move in closer. Focus on your breath. Can you feel the planet beneath you? Earth feels strong, stable, and still, like the home we know. Yet it is not as still as you might assume. Through space, we are traveling more than 66,000 miles per hour, 18 and a half meters per second, hurling through the universe. Can you feel our planet's orbit around the warm embrace of the sun? You might not, but we do every day. This motion affects our experience on our planet. The same motion, initiated long, long, long ago, continues to move our planet. Try to feel the Earth's gentle rotation, the way it carries us from day to night. At the equator is the Earth's fastest rotational speed. Standing there, you would be rotating almost 1,670 kilometers per hour, just over 1,000 miles per hour. We feel so still that we are in constant transformation, constant motion that envelops us, and which started almost 13.7 billion years ago. The universe has been changing since its creation and will continue infinitely. This movement results in an incredibly magnificent and diverse planet with an array of complex and diverse species, some of which are extinct and others have not yet become. Life is movement. We, you, humans, are part of this incredibly diverse life, but what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be you? Breathe in. And out. To understand who you are, we must investigate and understand what we are made of. You or me is much more complex than the simplicity of a single syllabled word. You, I, persons on this planet are an incredibly unique, once in a universe, never to be repeated, accumulation of matter, atoms, stardust, cells, bacteria, viruses, archaea, fungi, mystery, all with hidden dimensions, currently in relation, all co-creating together, inseparable from one another. Trillions of different species that rely on each other to maintain the constantly forming you that you and they are. When you ponder this complexity, it becomes impossible to separate you from these bodies that live within, on, around, and between you. Breathe in. 
and now you are not alone in this breath and now your breath is vibration your breath is forming the trillions that make up you as is every movement of your body the planet the sun the atoms the movement of the multitudes that were within you and within everything else. Breathe in. And now. Your breath is alive. Let's imagine again, except we are not imagining. This is paying attention. Let's pay attention to the vastness of the universe, to the age of the cosmos, the movement of continents, the ever-changing climate, to the dance of celestial bodies, the eons of geological transformation, the mysteries of quantum uncertainty, the multitudes that make up you and everything else, the evolution of human society along with more than human species, this diversity of life, all of which are vibrations, time, movement and mystery. Breathe in. And out. The world is vibrations. You, me, life on this planet is vibration. Our mountains, rivers, plains, plateaus, valleys, plants, beaches, they are constantly in motion being changed through the constant vibration of others. You are not a bystander in the co-creation of this planet. Neither are the trees, the birds, the bees, the foxes, the rabbits, the cows, the storms, the volcanoes, tsunamis, even the buildings, the cars. We are all co-creating this world together. This is the aliveness of the world. This is motion and movement on our planet. While we often think we have created something that we would consider is a fixed form, such as a building, a bridge, a car, artwork, music, even a mindset has already begun its transformation and movement. Think about this the next time you create a piece of art. Sit next to a tree, read a book, change a part of your car, or listen to your favorite song. Does it always sound the same? Does it always look the same? Does it always make you feel the exact same way? Or is it always different? Is it always a brand new experience? Time, movement, vibrations, they have already begun to transform it. It may take one hour, one day, one year, hundreds of years, maybe even millions of years for our observation to catch it, but nothing is impenetrable from movement, time, and motion. Everything is therefore always in a state of becoming. Breathe in. And out. As you meditate on this constant motion, I hope you notice a subtle shift in your perception of what time, motion, movement, and the aliveness of our planet, and how this is ever-present in this world within, because of, and around you. 
Can you feel the motion of where you are? Open your eyes. Look at the place around you. Is it alive? Is it moving? Bring your awareness to yourself. Are you ever still or are you always in motion? Breathe in and breathe out. As you listen to the rest of this podcast, remember where we came from. Motion, movement, vibration, life, the secret and hidden parts of everything, mysteries we may never be able to fully understand. After all, we are only made of trillions. hello and welcome back from the thought experiment i hope you enjoyed it it was a lot of fun to make and now for the episode becoming animator the title of this episode Becoming animator might be better understood in the form of a sentence. Becoming animate matter. As this first episode is a structure, it's a framework for thought and a level of mutual understanding of how this world is not just inherently populated with objects that we choose to interact with. Everything, everyone, they all have stories. What matters is how you see and are open to this idea. It might be helpful to give one defining term. Throughout this, I might reference the word bodies. When I do, I do not solely mean human bodies. I mean all bodies. In my view, a fox has a body, a bird has a body, a car has a body, but also the bodies of a water bottle, or even the body of an essay. All possibilities for the word body apply when I use this term. If you listen to the thought experiment, You may have noticed the emphasis on motion, movement, and vibrations. These forces are permeating, influencing, and creating our world at every level. From the largest mountains, human structures, land masses, even oceans, to the smallest measurements of atoms and molecules, we are enveloped in motion. I will play some of the background noise from the meditation, which is actually the sound of the Matterhorn as it flexes and stretches its body and the recorded seismic vibrations. This transition does not stop on the physical level. It also lies within those things that are less tangible. All stories, memories, thoughts, ideas, traditions, words are also in motion, being stretched and changed and manipulated 
with time and perspective, always in motion and transformation. This is constant on our planet. When I say this, there can be a sense of obviousness to this dialogue. For every day we are wrapped up in this motion. The cars rumbling by, the wind hitting our face, the storms passing by, the sun rising and falling, even your favorite sweater fading and getting a hole in it. If you look to your left, what do you see? A wall? A person? A structure? Maybe a blade of grass? What you are looking at will not remain in that form forever. In fact, it is currently, ever slightly, continually forming into something else. Becoming. Some of us may understand this and see that matter, given enough time, will change. That even us, our bodies, this complex collaboration that makes us up, will, as they have many times before, shift and form something new. Because matter is never destroyed. With this awareness, I challenge you to choose to have a different look on life. Rather than seeing things as static forms, can we choose to see everything as this idea of becoming, in constant flux, always between one state and another, and never reaching the end form? Even the word form implies static, stationary, solid, while the word forming implies movement, life, and growth. A useful analogy might be to picture that life is lived on a trail, a pathway, a line of continual formation, never actually reaching an end form. These trails and pathways, which philosophers Giles Deleuze and Felix Guattari call lines of flight or lines of becoming, introduce and reinforce the idea that this world consists of fluid, continuous rebirth, continuously becoming. Every action continues to create this world that we live on. Every thought, every building, every dam, every destruction, every death, every bomb, every new life, every footstep, every paw print, every flutter of wings is a contribution to forming. These lines of flight in which the bodies of the world are continually becoming are important for a few reasons. It opens us up to see that the very texture of the world is in transition and that everything plays a part. Next time you walk down the street or on a path, I want you to think about this. Can you see the cracks in the pavement? Can you see the moss growing up the side of the building? How about the water that has rounded off the rocks and shaped ditches in the trail? or the clouds that shift to cover and uncover the sun. These are all bodies constantly becoming and constantly forming the texture of our world. Anthropologist Tim Ingold, in his book, Being Alive, Essays on Movement, Knowledge, and Description, writes a few chapters about trying to undo the idea of what is called inversion. Inversion is the act of seeing entities or organisms as bounded points. Common with modern science entangled in modern thought, we are presented an idea in which an organism stands separated from their environment. We can see beings and bodies impacted by their environment, but we do not see them as an entanglement of impacting. 
Ingold sees this idea as a shell in which the inner beings are sheltered from their interactions with the world. This is not continuous becoming. Ingold challenges the idea of the commonly depicted web of life, which we all might know from science class. His quote, The lines we might draw to represent the contact are not one along which anything moves or grows. They are not lines of flight, but lines of interaction. Yet, behind the network of interacting entities is what I call the meshwork of entangled lines of life, growth, and movement. This is the world we inhabit. My contention throughout is that what is commonly known as the web of life is not a network of connected points, but a meshwork of interwoven lines, these lines of becoming. Everything has a pathway, a line of flight, movement, and growth. The table, the chair, your best friend, the raindrop on your window, even the puke on the sidewalk. But does a single line of flight explain the complexity that is within everything? Well, of course not. The complexity that is beings, faces, and places in this planet is not simplified by a single line of flight or becoming, but instead expressed as an abundance of multitudes, or as I like to say, multiplutes, which is an explosion of multitudes. Imagine for a second the word life. Not the meaning of the word, but just the word life. It's pathway. It's flight. Just by mentioning the word, you have ideas that pop into your head. The ideas are remnants of the trails it has left behind. The images of what you assume life is, or what life means, are also becomings. They change as you understand it. The sentences that it has been used to create also have these pathways. These sentences, forming into paragraphs, which might continue forming into an essay, a book, a paper, a song, a poem, even a podcast, have their meshworks of interwoven lines of becoming. Then again, each letter of the word, L-I-F-E, also has its process of growth and is also an entanglement as each individual letter is used in millions of other words across centuries of language. This is the idea of becoming, that life is a meshwork of lines, growth, and movement, all interweaving to create the very texture of this book, The World. The idea of becoming is not new, nor is it only expressed by Ingold, Deleuze, or Guattari. This idea of flight, lines, pathways, trails, although maybe not called this specifically, might be better understood as relationships. The idea that movement is primary in life and that everything is lived within a meshwork of other beings brings us to the second word in the title of this podcast, animism. Today, animism is both a philosophical concept and a recognition of relationships within the world. When I say that animism is a concept, I am not talking about the experience. 
I am not talking about the alive relational world as if it is inert dead matter that can only be philosophized. I am speaking about the word, the letters on a page or spoken out of my mouth, A-N-I-M-I-S-M, and the history of that specific assortment of letters. The term animism was first adopted in 1871 by Edward Tyler, who was thought to be the founder of cultural anthropology. He described animism as a religion attributed to the belief in souls and spirits. Tyler's description of animism, though, was that it was a mistake, an error, shared by primitive people. Here's a quote. Animism began and continues as a way of trying to make sense of the world. It is a mythopoetic mode of discourse that explains life and events to those not yet fully acculturated to the practice of rationalist science. Today, animism is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as the attribution of a living soul to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. To Tyler and apparently to Oxford, this was and is a belief system, or how some people call it today, a religion. Tyler's generation was a growing and continued falsity in the world. His thoughts were congruent with some still common belief that Western science holds the true knowledge of the world. It wasn't until the work of another anthropologist, Irving Hollowell, where we started to catch up with seeing the world in this way, and the true relationality of it. Hollowell's work with the Ojibwe of Kanata, or Kanata, leads us to a changed and more accurate definition of animism. Quote from Harvey, Animists are people who recognize that the world is full of persons, only some of whom are human, and that life is always lived in relationship with others. The word persons in this definition is probably the most confusing as well as the most misunderstood. It's easy to hear the emphasis on persons and misinterpret that. The Ojibwe do not mean that everything has a sense of human likeness, but in fact the opposite. That we are alike to everything else. That this world is full of persons, and we are just simply one type of those persons. The reason to use the word person is not to cause confusion. It is because the English language does not translate well in an animate world. But there is no other word that means quite the same, and persons is a diverse word. In the world, you can have many types of persons. Another quote from Harvey. Persons is the wider category, beneath which there may be listed subgroups, such as human persons, rock persons, bear persons, Persons are related beings, constituted by their many various interactions with others. Persons are willful beings who gain meaning and power from their interactions. Persons are sociable beings who communicate with others. A person is a meshwork of interaction, of life, of growth, and of movement. There are many types of persons in this world. The Maori of Aotearoa, New Zealand, will speak of relationships differently than the Ojibwe, and the Ojibwe will share different persons than the Cherokee. They are not limited by a pre-planned structure that has forced rules to abide by. Instead, how you address another person comes from the messiness of the world, the relationships that you have with certain places and persons. 98% of our ancestry was animal. Animism is the single most culturally unifying way of thinking grounded not in abstract thought, but in everyday experience. Graham Harvey, in his book Animism, writes this. It grows out of conversations with Maori hosts and friends about experiences of that which really does connect all life. Genealogy and its present manifestation in kinship, 
guesthood, and other relationships, and its construction and reconstruction in carved and built forms. The fecund vitality of this evolving universe is not expressed in supernatural forces requiring us to be mystical electricians, but in far more commonplace encounters. The forces that form us, pulling and pushing, encouraging and hindering, intimate and violent, arise from living in a world full of persons, each generated by their ancestral persons and generally desiring to have progeny and make space for them. We are also formed by the interplay of seasons, climates, times, places, and such like mundane, personal, ecological, and or communal realities. This too derives genealogically from the inherent potential of the original state of the universe or its precursor if we can think beyond temporal space. Animism is not grounded in abstract belief. It is from paying attention. It is grounded in recognizing that the world is full of persons and we are one of those persons. Scholars and researchers have identified many reasons that are linked to the loss of the animate. Some trace it back to Christian values. Others look to the Greeks with Aristotle and Plato. Rene Descartes comes up with his ideas that the mind is transcendent and separate from the body, a mind-body dualism. David Abram, in his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, blames the formation of written language says that taking words that related to the living, animate world to being ideas, one might be able to hear about something before ever having direct contact with it. I do not point to only one philosophy or culture revolution that shook the animacy away from us. For the nature of our separation from the animate can lead down many rabbit holes of becoming, entangled with philosophy, action, policy, globalization, and capitalism, but the one thing that can be agreed upon is that it has ethical and planetary consequences. From my research, understanding, and relationship with this way of life, it takes work. Just as I was taught through systems of formal, informal, and non-formal education on how I might be in this world, we also need to be taught how to become animate. Because at the heart, there is not crazy abstract or mystical electrician degrees that are needed. At the heart there is work, attention, teaching from people who have this knowledge and are living in this way, observation, empathy, and dilution of yourself. Animism is right relationships. It can be a return towards acknowledgement and recognition, not an angel-like acknowledgement. Animists do not hold a mystical power in which they can do no harm. To know another person takes work, just like to know another human truly takes work because they are an evolving and changing being, just as you are. Animism comes with immense implications. For to recognize that we are just one of the persons in this world, and that our processes are part of the forming of this world, is to acknowledge that every action is both personal and environmental. As we think about re-engaging with the animate world, I draw attention to the question, of where is our language that speaks of the world as animate entities. The history of human language and communication is incredibly complicated. It is a difficult history to track down because only recently since 3500 BC have languages been written down and therefore we do not have as much evidence of their linguistical anthropology. However, I can tell you this. 
Early communication began with gestures, possible sign language, but also movements of articulated intention and desires. This nonverbal communication eventually developed over time into verbal sounds. Yet these sounds were not random. David Abram in his book The Spell of the Sensuous tells us the story of language as a sensation, that in these sounds, these formings of verbal speech were also the rhythm and mimics of the sounds heard in the living world. As the world became verbal, we articulated experiences not apart from the environment. As our body, which has been attuned to the howls of the wolves, the speech of the birds, and the flows of the rivers, started to respond to these and each other with sounds of our own. Then slowly as language developed, language gained an interesting ability to be able to speak about itself. Language could now speak about language. How the Mind Comes Into Being, a book published in 2017, states, Verbal communication enables a complete abstraction and detachment from the current state of the environment. Greater flexibility in verbal expressions enabled the construction of more complex grammatically structured utterances. Cognitively speaking, Verbal communication thus facilitates the generation of abstract thought. Eventually, language developed into written forms, and now we are able to transfer large amounts of description about the world to one another, and no longer do we have to see or interact with the world to know about it. Today, we do not see these persons and matter around us as having aliveness or as animate entities. One reason for this is because of the structures that are within the language we speak. This lack of attention to the animate, alive universe did not come about randomly, nor was it an entirely planned prejudice. The philosophers Giles Deleuze and Felix Guattari introduced to us the idea of geophilosophy, a greater understanding that concepts have histories that are not solely tied to thought. Thought happens in both a time and a place. Quoted from Thomas Keating and Nina Williams, the exceptional contribution of geophilosophy is in invalidating universalizing philosophical claims and insisting instead that thought is an event that emerges out of relationships between concepts and a milieu that is both contingent and plural. The word milieu might be synonymous with environment, yet it dictates that within the environment, the person philosophizing is still someone, not separated from it, but in relation with it. Thought is as equally in relation with the external as it is with the internal, and it might even be easier to say that there is no separation. Deleuze and Guattari emphasize in their work that philosophy is not the uncovering of truth, which might be the thinking of some philosophy, but instead it is the creation of concepts. 
these concepts have consequences. Today we know so much about the world that little astonishes us. We can be surprised, but nothing truly seems like magic. It is hard to notice the beauty and the inspiration in the mundane when everything seems to have a systematic answer because we think we have uncovered so much. It is not a coincidence that in the English language, common nouns such as storm, bird, mountain, bear, fish, and ocean are not capitalized, but the name of a city, the name of a company, a corporation, a human achievement is another example of a dualistic relationship with nature. Often in various books, literature, or common debates, you come across some form of the phrase reconnection to nature. The concept that we, human beings, are disconnected from the natural world. While I see the main idea of this phrase as trying to be helpful, I struggle to see the accuracy of it and question if it actually furthers our lack of attention toward the aliveness of our world, and therefore seeing a commonality with it. The term nature can be problematic. Nature implies a somewhere outside of our existence. Nature is a place, a realm that does not include the human parts of the world. If we really had to disconnect from nature, we would have no relationship with it or within it. We have not become disconnected from nature, for that implies that we even have the ability to become disconnected from nature. To think that we even hold the ability to become separate stems from thinking that we are different from nature rather than a part of it. That is not the world that I see. I see a world full of relationships with more than human persons and bodies. Some of these relationships are strong, some are weak, some are reciprocal, some are parasitic, some are respectful, and some are degrading. If you were to Google images of nature, what would come up? Trees, plants, birds, green fields, blue skies, maybe a rainforest, a beautiful landscape. Yes, this is nature, certainly. But what they forgot to include on the Google image search was us. The cars, the buildings, the fences, the bridges, the parks, the highways, the creations on this planet made by humans. We are from this earth. We are contributing to the forming of this earth. And the way in which we do that may be different from the other persons on this world. That is because we are not a bird. We are not a bear. We are not a rock or a river or a tree. We are humans, but we are no less natural or no more natural than they are. Just as our actions on this planet are no more or less natural than theirs. To say that we are special in this world, or to say that we are disconnected from nature, is to say that somehow we are governed by different forces than that of the rest of the people on this planet. The same actions that make the wind blow, the grass grow, that hold the tree roots sturdy, that allows water to flow and fall, that creates beauty, destruction, and disgust are the same lively forces and actions 
that hold ourselves together, allow us to speak with one another, and that keep our feet tethered on the ground and create the flow of our blood. All the things we create come from the planet, and if they stay on the planet, eventually they will shift and form something else because of the processes that are within the world, because of the constant forming that is this world. Our creations are just as natural in my eyes as the forming of a bird's nest, a tsunami, or a mountain. After all, we are not aliens that landed on this planet. We have evolved from this earth, and it is time that we start acting like it. As you have listened to this podcast, I hope that you have been open to the idea of the aliveness of the world. The aliveness that is within every person who inhabits and co-creates this world, within, around, and between each other. It is also important to emphasize the historical degradation that not teaching, thinking, or acting in this way has had on our world. Look at our planet. I want to bring your attention back to something that may have slipped your mind. If you would please find your rock friend and return to them. Look at them. Through no intervention of your own, the water that had once covered its surface has potentially evaporated, if not all, at least some. The surface has changed color. The darker patches are recognizable from the other patches. You might even be disappointed by what you see. Does it look less stony than it had before? We might be inclined to think about it in this way, but it's more accurate to say that the appearance is just different. But the difference in appearance is not the only thing. The stone not only feels different to you, it looks different. If you were to knock it against something, it would sound different. The dry stone and the wet stone both sound and act differently. They leave a different effect on the world. What we might conclude from this, and what is important to take away with you, is that the stone being wet or dry is wrapped up in the animate forces of the world. Its stoniness changed by no intervention of your own. Modern scientists might say, well, yes, that is evaporation, in which I would reply, yes, the reason that the stone is now dry is evaporation, but the changes that the stone has gone through, its becoming, is not only evaporation, the dry stone sounding different and looking different than its wet persona is due to its entanglements within the world. Think of the stone now as a person. This person's interactions within the world help show us its aliveness. The forces that are both impacting it and being impacted by it. There is no way in which its stoniness or personness can be understood apart from its engagements and its participation in our world. Just like you, just like everything else in our world. This is what I mean when I say that things are alive. This is what matters. To understand that everything is under the same forces that we are, governed by the same rules. From the start of the universe until now, we all develop from the same coherent evolution of matter. All matter has agency and all matter has importance and value on this earth. We all know the importance of water. It is simultaneously the most destructive force on our world 
and the most life-giving. Its form in either a gas, liquid, or solid helps shape our world. But would we consider this to be dead? How can a dead thing give us all so much life? Or are we thinking about what it means to be alive incorrectly? Have we defined something that we ourselves do not truly understand? Let's hopefully agree that we are alive. Human beings are one of the many persons on this world and are part of this aliveness. But where does this aliveness start and end? We are an accumulation of many things that one might consider inanimate or dead. Yet these very same forces I see as animate persons, persons that we depend on for our own survival. You cannot separate us from water, air, gravity, sunlight, carbon dioxide, and expect us to remain alive. Just as your stone friend cannot be separated from these same forces and expect to have the same impact on the world. This begs the question of where the line starts. Where does a dead thing become alive? Where does an accumulation of inanimate matter become a living, alive person in this world? Or is it all alive? Is it all having agency? Is it all desiring of progeny? And are we just one type of this aliveness? Can we see that no force, no person, no matter on this planet is truly dead or inanimate? Everything affects this world, contributes to its aliveness. Everything is becoming. Everything is animate. Everything matters. <laughs>